Welcome to Reimagining Ceremonies, a podcast by Entheos Ireland. I'm Karen Dempsey. And I'm Fred Curtis, and we're here to start conversations about reimagining ceremonies. Welcome to episode two of Reimagining Ceremonies, a podcast by Entheus. We have rebranded already. <laughs> episode two, so a podcast by Entheus, not Entheus Ireland. Karen, explain. <laughs> we have rebranded to Entheos because we are also authorised to celebrate marriages in the north of Ireland. And we are hoping to go beyond because this service is needed in so many different countries all around the place. So it just gives us, um, it gives us a broader scope on the work that we do in the world and how we are branded. So we have a division that is, will remain Entheos Ireland based here. Yeah. Um, but who knows where we'll grow and why, why limit ourselves to one geographic location? The exactly. world is our oyster. <laughs> this is it. Um, today's episode, we're going to talk about... So you had an end-of-life wedding yes. yesterday. We're not going to go into what that wedding was about or who yeah. it was with, because we don't do that on this podcast. But we are going to talk a little bit about being of service, I suppose, and the end-of-life weddings, the end-of-life funerals, um, all the areas, the heavy, tricky situations, and the part that Entheus hopes to kind of play and be of service. Um, And I definitely think this is more of your domain um, because you are experienced in this kind of area. You have a wealth of knowledge in it. So I'm going to kind of pass it over to you and say, do you want to explain Entheus's kind of stance on particular ceremonies that maybe are a bit heavier, trickier, and people who maybe need that bit more support because things aren't okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think this follows on really nicely from our first episode because we covered so much in yeah. that episode and we didn't get to this part which to me is a really key part of the heartbeat of Entheos and why we exist um, so one of the key things that I saw when I was working in this arena and seeing the gaps that weren't being weren't being served as fully as I would have liked them to be served were in the areas um, where maybe there are celebrants who would like to work in certain situations but lack the experience or the training to give them the confidence that they need to actually step into that space. So I wanted to create an organization that could train people to be experts in that type of work. And what I mean by, I don't want to speak, you know, vaguely about it. What I mean is situations that are highly emotionally charged, Mm -hmm. situations that make us as human beings go into our more primal mode, which is we feel fearful, we, you know, feel quite physiologically activated, Um, And it's natural that we don't feel inclined to put ourselves forward for that work. But if we are actually working in that arena and we are primed for that and trained for that and feeling confident, it's a totally different experience. And then we can go in and be the person who is calm and and can can direct people in the way that they need to be directed. Because sometimes people just cannot make decisions, cannot say a way forward. So we can be the person who holds the steadiness and can gently guide people the way that they need to go and hold the ceremony with them. Yeah. Um, so specifically, there are, there are two particular types of ceremony that I wanted to train people to be very comfortable with. And they are 
uh, funerals for babies and children. Um, because funerals for babies and children, when, when a family is plunged into that utter devastation, um, is there can be nothing can help. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing can help. There's no point in anybody thinking they can ever, ever do or say anything that can make it even a tiny bit better. All we can do is try to not add anything else onto it. We can't mm-hmm. make it worse either. You cannot make it worse. You can just, you know, we just want to keep help people to kind of stay on track and and support a family as, as much as we can. It's so heavy that I suppose a role that the celebrant can have is to come up and pick up a bit of the weight yeah. that we're trained to do. And although, as you say, will it help? Probably not. It's such a devastating situation. Yeah. But at least they it gives them a bit more space to come to terms. Yes with what is happening and you can kind of just be there to be like don't worry about that we've got this we've got this and what we can do is help the one way we can potentially help is to give a family a memory that they can actually feel solid when they remember back to that to that ceremony to honor and mark the passing of their child's life yes that they can remember it and feel held in that memory that they did what they could and that they memorialize their beautiful, precious child, a baby or infant, whoever it is, that they memorialize them as, as, with as much heart and love as that little person deserved. Um, and even if we had all the time in the world for a ceremony, we could never put all of that heart and love into it, but we can try and make a little essence that that, that is enough to help give a family that, that memory to lean on. Yeah. Um, and that becomes really, really important. The legacy of... Of, of the threshold ceremony for that. As years go by, um, if a family can have something to think back on, that is a huge thing for people. And it can be very mm-hmm. traumatic. It can really add to the trauma if a family looks back on a child ceremony with regret or with anger or with any of the emotions that can come up when a person holds that ceremony who doesn't know what they're doing or who isn't, mm-hmm. who isn't fully invested in what they're doing. Um, we all hear stories of that, so we want to be an organization that will minimize that. Yeah. Um, and there's two ways that, two key ways that I saw that we can help as celebrants. Before we just jump yeah. into that, there was, so there's the end of life ceremonies for an infant, yeah. a baby, and then the second one is the end of life marriages. Yes. So do you want to explain a bit about that and then we can yeah. pop into that other Absolutely. point? So end of life marriages, I... Originally, I used to work as a hospice nurse um, and a nurse, hospital nurse. And this background kind of gave me some insight into, it gave me the confidence, I suppose, to really move into this area. Because when I then began working as a solemnizer of marriage, um, I I, I saw the need for couples who have been together for, for whatever length of time and get the worst situation where one of them goes into hospital for an appointment and gets the most devastating news that they have a, a limited time left, that, that they've been given an end-of-life di- diagnosis, that you know there's something happening and that they will not have long left. And in these situations, sometimes somebody would be given a few weeks or months and, and they've got a little bit of time to plan. But, but sometimes, thankfully rarely, but sometimes it happens that a couple are given literally days. Yeah. And the panic that can set in, because very often there are a couple who've been together a few years, they have been raising their family, building a home, they intended to get married, but maybe didn't have the finances. You know, the usual, very ordinary 
way the families live in the world. Yeah. And then suddenly they're faced with this. One of them is going to die and they, they are not married. And the, the legal implications of that suddenly loom straight up and become horrendous, horrendously scary and place a big burden on their plate that, that they don't need. They have enough to be dealing with with the impending loss of, of one partner. Um, so for me, on my first time that I was ever called to do a ceremony like this, I didn't, obviously I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how the pattern works. I didn't know the process. But the one thing I did know was that I was willing to move mountains to do whatever it took to get that uh, couple, the paperwork that they needed and, and to be there to yeah. get them over the line. Um, so I learned the process um, and I you know, became, I made myself known to the medical social workers and to the people that were involved to say, look, if, you're, if you need this, um, I'm here and I'm, I'm very willing to step in. And then I began to be called more and more often to do this work. But the thing with it is, I began to be called more and more often to do this work. And that's why I realized, hold on, I need, I need more people than just me. Yeah. Um, and again, this was a part of what was inspiring Entheos to be founded. Um, but the other piece I was going to say there was, um, oh yeah, that when, when a couple is faced with this paperwork dilemma where they have to, where every, every moment counts, not even, not even every day, and it's sometimes it happens on a Friday that somebody realizes this, and sometimes on the Friday of a bank holiday weekend, and they're losing days because of because of working hours. Um, but if a medical social worker or a family member can pick up the phone to us at Entheos and say, "This is the situation. We have a person in this hospital. They need to be married as soon as possible." We now we no longer have that learning curve. We are ready to go. We know exactly mm-hmm. what we need to do um, to to get the ball rolling. They they will need a letter that is signed by the person who's going to solemnize the marriage to say that they're available on the day. So we will provide that immediately. They need an original, so somebody will drive to that hospital with, with the letter. It doesn't matter what time of day or night, we will do it. And, and this is our absolute commitment. We yeah. cannot make a vague commitment on this. We cannot do a business hours thing on it. We really, really are deeply committed to doing everything that we can to help, help the couples. Um, and I say this as well, because it's always, we say, we do this with all of the appropriate guidelines in place, particularly around consent. Um, you know, the, the person who is dying needs to be in a condition to still consent. Um, and there's various things like that that we work in, in conjunction with the registrars, you know, to, to do this. But um, we're really, really mindful of the various different... It's not always joyful. It's not... It's, it, yeah, it's not always joyful and it's not always straightforward. But we will we will roll with each situation as it comes. Um so for Entheos, having a team of people who there is a core, there's a phone call that can, that can be phoned, there's a phone number that they can call mm-hmm. and that we will then administer it from, from there, from our side, um, to make it much more easier for the couple. Um, and it's not easy. And that, that, that's only the administration part of it because then we have the ceremony. Yeah. Um, and the ceremony is not the same as a regular, ceremony, a regular wedding ceremony. For the most part, a wedding ceremony tends to be about a couple committing, well, it is about a couple committing their life to one another, and it still is in this situation. But without all of the beautiful words about what's to come in the future, and you, know, you don't know what's to come, but what you do know is this is your person you will have by your side, come what may, this couple knows that they do know one thing that is to come, and that is the death, the imminent death of one of them. Um, and they're there very often with their children, with them. It's, to me, it is the most heartbreaking situation to have somebody 
in their wedding ceremony, looking at their beautiful children and their beautiful spouse and all of their family and knowing that their time is so limited. Um, so almost every, every word of a ceremony when we hold one in a hospice or a hospital or wherever we are, every word is really carefully curated to make sure that it's as gentle as yeah. it can be and that it's as real as it can be. Because we can't shy away from the fact that the truth is this marriage is not going to last terribly long. And bearing in mind as well that depending on the couple's beliefs, for some people, the, the concept of eternity becomes really important in this situation. And some people don't believe in eternity. Yeah. So we will still hold that very, very tenderly as well. And sometimes we won't even have time to speak with a couple before, you know, in depth before the ceremony, because this is just more decisions and they can't cope with, do you believe in eternity? I mean, yeah. <laughs> they, we, we need to just focus on what we're doing. Um, so we go, we're going on very limited information sometimes. And in that case, we go to the absolute essence of a wedding ceremony which is this ancient human ritual that we have been taking part in since the dawn of time in all the different ways that our different societies have managed and even outside of societies that people have managed to find ways to pledge their love and commitment to one another so in this situation that's what we're focusing on this is your two this is your opportunity to place your stitch in this great tapestry of life mm -hmm. and marry one another today regardless of everything else that's going on in the world, it's you two right here, right now, are marrying one another. And nothing can ever change that once we've held this ceremony. Yeah. How important is that for, I've never performed one of these ceremonies. I've sang at really devastating um, funerals of very, very young people. Um, so I'm aware of entering that kind of space, but I've never performed an end of life marriage. How important, like obviously there's the legalities, there's so many nuanced areas um, to protect the, the spouse who isn't going to pass on. Yeah. But how important, we kind of touched on this in the last one, that when it comes down to it, it's about the two people. Yeah. How important is it for those two people to kind of be joined in union away from the, you know, legal side of things or the yeah. paperwork. How yeah. important is it to be like, I want to take this moment to connect us and to make yeah. us a union before you pass on? How important is that as the celebrant? Do you, like, do you feel that? Um, absolutely. Because one of them, yeah, is the legalities and that side of things. But another yeah. huge part is that when the spouse who's, who's, who's dying, when they go, that the other person is able to refer to them as my wife yeah. or my husband or whichever the case may be, that, or my spouse, whatever words, but that they can refer to them in that way that, is, that society places a much stronger weight on. Um, mm -hmm. That it's, it's not, my, not to minimize the words my partner, but, but when you've been bereaved of your life partner, very often it is so important to be able to actually give them the gravitas of that title that we yeah. were married to one another. Um, it goes back to language and what language, language means yeah. to people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and wearing a wedding ring on your finger, you know, obviously you don't need to be married to wear a ring on your finger, but all of these things that symbolize that love and commitment that they had in life and that goes on after one person has gone, these are all really important things um, to a bereaved person. And the grief has begun, really. The, the, it's, it's anticipatory grief, really, is what we're looking at in a ceremony like this where everybody gathered knows mm -hmm. what's about to come. Um, and they want to be... And it's such a conflict as well for the guests who are gathered there because they want to be, they want to be as joyful and as weddingly, uh, weddingly as they can. 
and that's that even amplifies the grief then because the more they try to be joyful the more they feel the pain of what's ahead um so you'll see people in all their finery and they'll have the balloons and they'll have tears streaming down their face and they're saying, I'm really, really trying to, I said I would keep my tears for tomorrow, but, you know, and you just have to kind of laugh and cry and, and all of you those emotions are up. there. You have yeah. to just yeah. be like, it's okay. Yeah. Feel as you're feeling because even in some weddings that mightn't be in a kind of devastating situation, emotions can come up on the day. Like things can happen that aren't always completely joyful. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I think it's so important to be like, it's okay. Let's go with that. Like, let's allow that to be here as well. Yeah. Because it's part of, you know, it's part of their world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, particularly in that situation, I think definitely I would hope that I'd be able to be like, it's okay. Let's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Allow yourself to show up as you are. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, one of the things that I say to every couple really is on the day, once we have the two of you there, nothing can go wrong. You know, anything else is just, you know, icing on the cake kind of thing. Mm-hmm. For the ceremony part, nothing can, now I'm, I'm not undermining the fact that the most devastating thing has gone wrong in their life. They've yes. got this awful, awful uh, diagnosis. But the, on the day, if people laugh, if people cry, if somebody forgets their, you know, it doesn't matter. Nothing could really go wrong. But I'm reminding myself about yesterday when um, somebody gifted the couple unity candles at the last minute. So we were about to, and somebody said to me at one point, oh, are you going to light the unity candles? And absentmindedly, I said, oh, yeah, I didn't. Re-. So I went to get a match and a nurse came running from the back of the room and said, there's an oxygen tank right in front <laughs> Oh my God, yeah. So simple, small things like that. But I mean, people laughed. It was a little moment of actual light relief. um, Which is my favorite thing about (laughs) all ceremonies is that the mistakes or the little errors that can kind of happen bring a bit of relief and a bit of humor to the situation. And I'd say in a really, um, you know, terrible situation like that, that little moment of relief or a little laugh um, can be really, can be really yeah. nice. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a nurse. I, I laughed myself. I was like, how did I, <laughs> what, was I what was I even thinking? Yeah. We were outdoors. Um, so thankfully it wouldn't have been horrendously. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to, because this is something, when you're training to be a celebrant with Antheus, you are training to do all types of ceremonies. Yeah. You can't come and say, I specifically want to do weddings. I specifically want to do funerals. Yeah. I specifically want to do baby naming. You can't kind of pick a path and say, I'm only doing this yeah. training. You train for everything. Um, that is rooted in the fact that as an Antheus member, um, you are preparing to kind of do the community service of these types of ceremonies. Um, But how important is it that when you come to train, that you're training for everything? Yeah. Why did you make that decision? That's a really common question. And I know people get kind of frustrated because they're like, well, I just want to do weddings or I just want to do funerals. Mostly it's, I just want to do weddings. Very few people come and say, I just want to do funerals. But regardless of which it is, um, actually, no, that's not really true. Quite a few people do come and say about funerals, but... um, but one of the key things is, for us, this organization is about ministry underpinning celebrancy. So even if you don't like to use the word ministry, it's the service, it's the pastoral care side of things. Mm-hmm. And if you were to say, I only want to do weddings, or I only want to do funerals, or I only want to do baby namings, um, you leave out such, none of them exist in a vacuum. None of them. You can't, that, that, that implies that weddings are happy. 
funerals are sad, baby namings are happy, you know, um, where there's all sorts of everything mixed in. And I guarantee you, once you actually put yourself out there in the world as a person who wants to hold ceremony and is available to hold ceremony, people aren't going to categorize you into, but they only hold weddings. Yeah. They will call on you for their life events. Um, and for this organization, we don't want to have people out in the world who are showing up for ceremonies they are ill-equipped for, that they haven't actually planned for. Um, so if I was, if I, as, was as, as, the, as the trainer, if I was holding trainings for um, people with weddings only, a huge part of that would be how to, how to engage with people around death. If I was holding ceremonies or holding training for people who were doing funerals only, a huge part of that would be how to hold joy in a ceremony as well. Um, and, I, now, and I don't want to sound like I'm bright-siding funerals at all, but, but very often you hold a funeral for a family, they might like, they like how you held the ceremony, and then they call on you for a wedding in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise with weddings, you know, and very often as well with the end-of-life weddings, what can happen is you hold the wedding, and then days later you get the call for the funeral, uh, which is heartbreaking to yeah. do, but it's a beautiful continuity to be able to still be there for that family um, and to be a steady presence with them. So for me, it, it would not align with Entheos's ethos in the world if we were to separate these ceremonies, because then that's when you're breaking them down into silos, which just doesn't work. And again, with mm-hmm. the baby namings, I mean, I, I say to trainees all the time, a, a baby naming ceremony and a baby welcoming ceremony and a baby funeral are so close to one another. They are so closely aligned. Um, obviously. So in what way are they aligned? Because mm. even for myself hearing that, I'm like, yeah. they, they feel worlds apart because yeah. I've done um, some baby naming ceremonies and they're really special. Yeah. They're really beautiful. Um, but I couldn't, I wouldn't prepare in the same way or feel the same way going to do a baby's end of life ceremony. Yes. So how are they connected? So how they are connected is when you go to sit with a family to plan their baby welcoming mm-hmm. or their baby funeral, the questions that you will ask that family are the same. Okay. When you think about it in essence, what do you know of this child? What did you know of this child before they were born? Um, who are the important people in your family? Who will be, you know, who are the grandparents? Who are the, are you going to have guide pa- You know, all these kind of key things. Yeah. Is there a song that reminds you of this child? Is there a reading maybe that, you know, you associate with them? A poem maybe or a little book? Um, I suppose it's funny now that you say those things, I'm like, oh yes, in both ceremonies, it comes down to yeah. who the child was. Yeah, and, and these are children and babies. Well, babies in particular, say, because um, children will have a personality that is known yeah. more, more expressly. For a baby, their little feet have never touched the earth. They, you know, they haven't spoken any words, but yet they are known deeply by their parents, their siblings, and their families, mm-hmm. their wider families, grandparents. Um, and that's what we're drawing on for those, working on those ceremonies is, what do you know of this child? And for a baby welcoming, you're going to amplify that into, and what do you envision for their future maybe, or you know, what are your hopes for their future? Yeah. And for a baby funeral, families will still carry those hopes somewhere into the future in the milestones that, that they'll be marking without their physical presence yeah, of their child. Of course. But that child is always with them in their lives. The memories and the, the plans and the what ifs. Um, and yeah, but for a funeral, you're transitioning that into, um, into that utter loss and the devastation and all of, all of the 
horrendous yeah. gap that that leaves in a family's life. Because yeah. these parents will always be, they may have three children and the youngest has died. They will always be parents of four. They may have no children. Mm-hmm. And this is really key. They may have no children and this is their first child. And in that situation, it is imperative that they are referred to and spoken to as parents. Because even though they may not have a child to show to the world, they are parents. They will forever be parents. Yeah. Um, and it can be really painful for parents in that situation where they don't have other children, that the world doesn't view, society doesn't see them automatically as parents. The devastation of that when they are mm-hmm. parents. Um, so there's a lot of subtleties in both of them. So it's not as simple as the planning is the same. I don't, but if you're training to hold baby ceremonies, baby welcomings, of course, you're going to also be called upon then to, do, to hold baby funerals yeah. because your community will see you as a person who holds baby ceremonies. So you saying, but I just want to do the, the so-called happy ones, doesn't cut it. Yeah. You are leaving yourself ill-equipped to actually serve the people that you wish to yeah. serve. And I think this is a nice moment to bring up how we train yeah. for these um, ceremonies and for these events. And it's very much about that thing that we touched on in episode one, which is looking at ourselves and looking inwards and revisiting ourselves as children or revisiting areas of grief and it goes back to this thing of we do the work inside so we're equipped to uh, facilitate these spaces how important I don't know how much we shared of the training in the first episode I don't think Mm. a lot but the training is a deep personal journey, yeah. you know? Um, and I actually don't know if there's other trainings like that um, out there because this is my only experience, obviously, with training as a celebrant. But how important is it to train in this particular way, touching on these difficult um, scenarios you're going to enter? Uh, absolutely important. So... Some of the feedback, we've, we've had a class that just finished last weekend, and some of the feedback from them was, I mean, it made my heart sing to read it because, and in a funny way, because some, somebody commented um, that the training was harrowing, <laughs> which I was like, whoa, that's a big <laughs> word, harrowing, but the best thing they had ever done. Yeah. Um, harrowing at times and the best thing they'd ever done. Um, and I say that with a smile because very often I think trainees don't know where we're going on the journey. And you know, yeah. they, until they come out the other side, they don't really see what what. Um, God, I make it sound terrifying now, do I? But um, until they come out the other side, then then I it all makes sense. I can confirm it's not terrifying. <laughs> no, it's not terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but sometimes people are very unfamiliar with their own inner world, yeah. and and it's important that they have a, that this training creates a space for people to, people to connect with their inner world because that is key to being a celebrant out there in the world. A part of the reason why we don't probably didn't speak very much about the training in the last episode and now, is it is hard to explain. It's hard to put words on it. Yes. But also, there is a large degree of magic that happens in the training. And that just happens when people come together in a group and allow themselves to be vulnerable and to connect with each other at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the training is about is us as trainers um, connecting, creating spaces for people to open up in a different way and to have an experience of themselves that may not be their usual experience. And yes, we cover some of the practicalities. Yeah, we do, we cover the practicalities and, and share 
you know, for me, being trained by somebody who is an experienced working celebrant is completely key because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of trainings are run by people who aren't necessarily out there working as a cele- working as a celebrant. Um, but also, there's a huge psychotherapeutic underpinning. So, working a lot around vulnerability, shame, trauma. It is we are, we run a trauma informed uh, celebrant training where we will hold and and people knowing that people come here with their own trauma that they may not even be aware of, that light that is held out of their awareness. And being in this space allows them to actually begin to realize, oh, maybe some of the patterns in my life are because of a, a deep-seated trauma that, that they don't recognize as trauma because society tells us that trauma has to be huge life events. Um, and very often, that's not the case. Trauma is anything that leaves an impact, a lasting impact on how you engage with the world a lasting impact on you as a person, whether it's very subtle or not. Um, so sometimes people, it dawns on them during the train that, oh, my experience of X was a trauma. Sometimes their experience of their own marriage ceremony is a trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes particularly with people engaging with, with faith paths and different things that have left them, yeah, bereft of what they would have liked for, for their actual ceremony. Um, but also things through tra- childhood. We, we look at primal wounding, um, we look at our experience of early life, um, teenage life, early adult life, middle life, depending on all the way we yeah. and going forward to end of life, to envisage our own end of life and to mm-hmm. actually engage with it because we don't know when that's going to come. Yeah. Um, we like to think we know that it's a long way in the future, but yeah. who knows? And just hearing you talk about that, that gives you all the tools or equipment to then show up for other people and be able to recognize um what what you need to be for them and to support them but also in the training what we also do is at the start of now I don't know if this has changed because obviously every training group is different but you we would show up and we would all just show up as we are and say what is happening in our lives what we're feeling what we're thinking um and I think that that's so powerful to then show up to ceremony or to meet your couple or to meet the family um and to show up as you are and be able to um connect with people even if there's a lot kind of going on and when you were talking there I always saw the the training as we're doing personal work we're working through stuff um, so we can feel aligned to go out into the world and then meet people. But actually, when you were just talking there, I was like, oh, my God, sitting in our group every month <laughs> was community. Yes. We were also learning through community by connecting with each other, even though sometimes it felt very spotlight. <laughs> you know, it, even even if you're not talking, you, you're feeling things, you're working things out, you're going through things. And now I'm only realizing, I'm like, oh no, it was, it's very much about that yeah. and being yeah. with the group and connecting with the group and being able to engage with other people's stories um, that might resonate with you because you've had different experiences. Um, but being able to find that connection yes. and support them equal to the amount of support I felt when I shared certain areas and things. And it means, so sitting in that circle allows every person to experience how it feels to feel seen and how it feels to actually connect with yourself. 
because one of the great teachings that you cannot teach without that circle is your own inner process. So as we sit in the circle and people begin to share, the first thing is we begin to realize when we look at people, we make judgments without realizing it. And then when we hear their inner world, we realize how very often what we imagine about a person is completely not connected mm. with actually the truth of what's going on for them. So that's the first thing is we get, and we don't consciously say this in the training yeah. because if, if we were to consciously say this, we burst the bubble of, of the magic. Now I'm just telling, here you go. But, but anybody, that's, <laughs> anybody that's coming for training, though, actually, when you're there in the circle, it will feel different. Um, yes. So you sit in the circle. And we, we, what, what I do say as well is that sitting in that circle and, and being alongside people as they explore their own emotional process is invaluable because you get to sit in the circle and feel your own emotional responses to somebody as they speak. And, mm -hmm. and what we want to teach our celebrants is how to check in with themselves. I mean, we call it a check-in. Everybody checks in and says where they're at, what's happening for them. But while people are doing that, everybody else can check in with, oh, when that person says that, I become really activated or I really shut down, I don't want to hear or I'm really intrigued by this or that completely, that's, that, that hits my shame button and I've gone into shame or I'm embarrassed for them or, you know, various different things. That and we saying get to those things out loud, being like, which does happen, you're like, you said this and I caught myself judging or yeah. whatever. And then being able to chat with that person and be like, I know I'm in the wrong or I, what, whatever, having that space to actually work through those things allows you to work through those judgments that are yeah. built within us, yeah. which is really special. And again, allows us to go back into our work yeah. and not show up and yes. judge or make assumptions, yeah. which and is so important. What it also does is it allows us to, to sit with a family and ask the questions that maybe would feel very scary if we hadn't gone there ourselves. So to, to ask some questions and to be available for the answer to come, whether it comes at a, a top line level or whether somebody actually comes with a, whew, a big answer. And very often in a baby naming ceremony, that can be completely unexpected by, mm -hmm. if a celebrant goes in thinking, let's have a baby naming ceremony, let's read a poem, let's have guide parents, let's light a candle, da 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 da, uh, fine. But actually, if you are going there at a slightly deeper level and you can ask questions that leave an opening for the, for the couple or the parents to answer at a deeper level, we can st sit there and breathe through the answers when we have actually become comfortable with our own inner responses um, and other people's responses when we our training helps people helps our celebrants to become more comfortable with heightened emotions mm -hmm. because very often we freeze up in heightened emotions we think we're going to be fine with them but when we don't experience it we can't say how we're going to be yeah. so in our training we help people to be in a supportive environment but also to to experience themselves in the presence of heightened emotions and yeah, just be able to be with it. Because one of the things about the training is you give people their space. Yeah. And if people are feeling a certain way, if they get upset or if they're expressing in a particular way, it's the job of the rest of the group to just sit back and yeah. hold the space for them, not jump in yeah. and be like, oh, you're grand, yeah. you're grand, hon. No fixing, no advising no fixing. is, um, no fixing, advising, no rescuing is one of our guidelines. For when people sit in the circle as well, we have we have very clear guidelines that we share with the with the trainees. Um, no fixing, no, uh, no uh, rescuing, no advising is one of them because 
Because again, we have so many people that like, I just want to fix things. And that can be so challenging when you are a celebrant who goes out into the world and you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. And we don't want celebrants to go out with bringing their fixing attitude to a family because they don't need that. It's not helpful. Um, so yeah, it, it, that's, a, that's a perfect example. Yeah. And also that, you know, we own our own process. So it's really to help people speak from I statements in the circle rather than, um, you know, we feel this or, you know, you said that and that makes me feel blah. Like we don't go there. It's yeah. always been, and people will be gently guided back to it. If somebody does kind of speak in the, you make me feel way that we gently guide them back to. You make yeah. me feel. <laughs> I should have known that was ridiculous. I couldn't let it go. My favorite song. <laughs> Is it your favorite song? Well, it's one of my favorite songs. Oh, okay, we're totally off topic there now. They're, they're no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry. Don't be sorry. Love a song. Um, but yeah, I'll think of you now the next time we get a You Make Me Feel. I know. The circle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll come in singing a bit of a read. there you go there's psychotherapy 101 if anybody catches themselves saying you make me feel you can first of all think of Ferg and then second of all think no hold on a minute nobody yeah. can make me feel anything I am mm. responsible for my own I can feel something in response to somebody else and if they repeatedly do it I need to ask myself why am I in relationship with a person who repeatedly yeah. brings up a feeling in me but we can't really say that that person makes me feel that way Interesting. That's very interesting. Mm, I'm going to have to sit with that one for a couple of days. To to drop in there, but um, yeah. Another thing, though, that you touched on there, which I just wanted to say, was the idea of you don't. When you show up, people make assumptions about you and who you are, and that's something that I've carried through since the training. And in a weird way, it's been a comforting thing because, like, when you're kind of going through your daily lives and I'm stressed about this, this is going on, this is happening. Oh God, I made a little error there. Da 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 da. And then you think that everyone is getting that perception of you. And then you meet someone and they're like, God, things are going great for you, aren't you? You're looking well. And you're like, oh yeah, no one knows kind of all the yeah. madness that is going on behind the scenes or the great stuff as well. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, you mightn't share the, some of the amazing things as well. But it is that thing to remind yourself that... People will make assumptions of yeah. you. So it's up to you. And I think this is important being a celebrant to show yourself to the people and yeah. be like, this is who I am. Do you want me to yeah. represent to you on the day? To to know you to a certain extent. To yeah. ele- exactly. And the other thing is, the other great thing is that when, when you bring people in fresh to a circle and you say, okay, look around the circle and just let yourself, let yourself think what are the things that you're assuming about each person. And people will look at a person based on the way they're dressed, based on the way they sit, based on maybe the way they speak. They will make certain assumptions about, you know, that person's going to be very conservative. That person's going to be, you know, yeah. all these different things. And then when you hear that p- person speak, you very often go, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. And yeah. it just helps to show us consciously how wrong we can be as well. We can never judge sometimes a book. Sometimes we're right, but, but cover, you know, yeah. sometimes we're completely off track. And how unfair we can be sometimes. You know, but I think guessing. the lesson in that is whether you're right, wrong. Yeah is actually meet the person and find out. That's exactly Talk yes. to them, ask yeah. the question. Yeah. Don't don't presume unless you've actually had the conversation yes. with them. That is absolutely it. I think just circling back around, um, and it might seem like we went on a tangent about training there, but mm. I think it's important that people know the way we train. So hopefully when they're listening to this, they can trust that when we go into these 
um, more difficult situations of yeah. service yeah. that we have really, we're really trying to hold the space and we're continuously doing our own work and showing up for ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to note one of the burdens that we do take away from people in these difficult yeah. situations is the financial burden. Yeah. So as part of Entheus, we, for an infant funeral, a child's funeral, a baby's funeral, for an end-of-life marriage, we are coming to you and we're taking the burden of hopefully this situation yeah. away so we can guide you through this, but also the financial situation. And I think that's important to notice yeah. or to note. Because I'm glad you said that, Ferg, because we at the very beginning, remember I said there's two things that we could take away from a family and I don't want anybody going... What were those two things? So these are exactly those oh, okay. two things. We have come back around. And I around. was like, no, Thank don't you. talk about that yet. <laughs> no, but you were right, because yeah. actually I, it was good to talk about the wedding side as well before, because, because this is a burden. There are two burdens that we can take off families in those two situations. And they are the burden of finances and the burden of decisions. Yes. So they are the two things that we can take. And I think it's really important to say as well that the way that we can do that is part of dreaming up this organization was I saw that very often the same people, people who are of service tend to be the same people all the time. And they tend to be these people who give, give of their time and their space without pay, which leaves them living a life that, that doesn't actually pay them in a way that they need to be, to live in the world, to yeah. have a comfortable life in the world. And I, I wanted to kind of find a way to address that. So in NTS Ireland, our celebrants who go out and are solemnizing marriages in uh, in hotels and you know the kind of the usual way the usual weddings out in a hotel and they've got x number of guests and it's been planned for a year and you know all that and they're paying full fee mm-hmm. any couple who pays full fee to an Entheos Ireland celebrant is supporting us in this work because each celebrant pays a, a small portion of each ceremony the fee for that goes back into the Entheos Ireland pot and that pot is what allowed that allows us to pay the celebrants then who go out and hold the end-of-life wedding ceremonies and the funeral ceremonies. So this, to me, is the essence of a community enterprise, um, that our celebrants who are out doing doing that type of work in the world are all supporting the ones that do the the what might be considered the tougher work um, and the work that maybe not so many people are available to do either um, or able to do. But that kind of work, the baby funerals and the end-of-life weddings needs a huge amount of flexibility from a person and not not every celebrant is able to actually make themselves available for that type of work mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's why we need a group of people who can do exactly. it. If someone's not available yeah. like yourself, you it can be passed on to someone that yeah. equally is prepared. And I want to actually name as well that, though, that we have names on those two subsidiaries of Entheos. Uh, our baby funerals are called Lara's Legacy after my goddaughter Lara. Um, when she died... I just saw how important, you know, and I, I through my work in the Rotunda as well, um, I just knew how important it is to lift the burden of decisions and finances from a family and just be there, literally be there and do mm-hmm. what we can. Um, and our end-of-life wedding ceremony piece is called Grogadio, which means in Irish, eternal love. It was difficult to come up with a name that captured what we do without sounding too close to funeral wordings we still want it to be wedding wordings while yeah. while encapsulating that it's not going to be a wedding that's going to last physically um for a long time so grogadio and uh and lara's legacy are those two and then we also have died with pride which we'll come to on another probably yeah. episode <laughs> we're going to explore that in an episode it's a really really important one yes 
Yeah, now I feel like we're just going to leave people thinking about that. But, Good, because they have to come back for the next but for come another, back for, another podcast. Yeah, we're going to do an episode <laughs> on that because that's yeah. amazing. Um, I think we should leave that there. Are we going to oh, yeah. mention the C word? The C word. <laughs> We've gotten, so we have asked people, like obviously message us, um, DM us, uh, drop an email. And one of the biggest, the biggest ones was, are we a cult? Because... <laughs> And we are actually going to do a whole episode on, I suppose, what is a cult? How do we, you know, it's something that does come up a lot. And people are interesting. It's interesting. People are like, actually, would love to hear you explore that and show that Entheus is not a cult. But we are aware of the areas that we need to keep um, our focus on so we don't fall into that kind of. We don't think we're a cult. Other people might, but we'll yeah. explore, we'll explore, you know, what, we'll what, explore what the different it. definitions of a cult might be. And yet we definitely don't want yeah. to fall into that category. But No, 100% not. <laughs> I'll be out the door straight away. <laughs> Fair, because like already putting his microphone down. <laughs> what are you talking about? But yeah, about? No, I suppose no, no, it's not. nice to give a little kind of like, we're going to explore Daiwa Pride. Yeah. Um, we're going to explore the idea of what a cult is. Um, there's loads of areas that we're going to explore. And we're also going to have next week our first guest which yes. is exciting yes um but karen thank you so much it i'm so what's great about this podcast personally is i feel like i'm getting to sit down and just almost retrain in a way as well <laughs> or check in with my yeah. training Good. um and i love that so thank you um, thank you for giving me and the space. you did call i think once i remember it being like and here at entheus ireland <gasps> But we are not Antheus Ireland anymore. Yes. So thank you for joining us. I've been Ferg Curtis. I've been Karen Dempsey. And this has been Reimagining Ceremonies, a podcast by Antheus. We say Antheus different. Do we? You say Antheos and I say Antheus. There's Enthe- one to sit on. Antheos is nice actually. Antheos, Antheos, Antheos. Everybody can comment somewhere and tell us how you pronounce Antheos. Yeah. It means enthusiasm. It's the root of the word enthusiasm and it means inspired from within. Probably should have started episode one with that. We'll do do an episode on that. But if we all followed what it is that inspires us and makes us feel enthusiastic, the world would be already a different place. Exactly. That's what we want to do. Yeah. We tried tried to finish. We we started. We tried to finish. We'll finish now. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)